Good morning, Grace. You guys are like awake today. Wow. It's fall. Everyone's back in school, right? You excited about that? I'm just. Gonna, I'm not going to touch that one. I'm just going to leave that here. Hey, we are in the uh, at the beginning of a brand new series today, titled "Just Lead," and I wanted to give you just a real simple snapshot of it, and then we'll, we'll jump in today. But we're going to be covering or walking through the book of 1 Samuel, uh, one of the key historical books in the Bible. And I want to just give you some context for, as we go through it because it's very different from where we have been coming from the last year and a half when we've been in the book of Romans, which is an epistle or a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome and is very direct, straightforward teaching. In an epistle, you pretty much read it as it is. You're looking for the logic and the argument that the author has to understand it, and it's pretty straightforward. Now we move into a narrative book, and a narrative book is just that. It's a a narrative history, and you're interpreted a little bit differently as we go through it, and so I think it's important because the majority of the Bible is narrative for us to have some ideas of what kinds of things do we look for to understand how God communicated through these authors. And so for a narrative book, just like any story, it has a plot that these authors would have used and the Holy Spirit inspired them as they did it. They choose certain characters that they're going to highlight. In any story, you can't tell everyone's story fully. You focus on certain characters and you bring out certain characters, even though a lot more was going on, in order to emphasize the greater point that's going on. And there's details. There's a thing called generalization and specification. So plot, the characters, and then generalization and specification. Those are key things that any author, any storyteller would use to communicate what's important in a story. And the same is true in this book. And so as we go through this, and as I encourage you to to read it during this season, be looking for those things. Don't think that this is just some book that plopped down out of the sky and into our laps since we have it fully now. This is real history, real situations that happened and recorded and even written in a certain way for us to understand what did God want us to grasp from these events in history. And 1 Samuel is one of the books that has probably some of the most familiar stories you've heard in the Bible. So I want to encourage you, if you've never read your Bible on a regular basis, or maybe you're new to the Bible, use the book of 1 Samuel during this fall season, and just make a commitment to say, you know what, I'm going to read a chapter every day, or I'm going to read through the section that we are going over each week that week, and just meditate and read through it and mark it for myself, and I I promise you, it'll be a transformational exercise for you as you allow God's Word to speak to your heart. So 1 Samuel, if you're new with us, there's a worship uh, pa- or a, a pamphlet in your worship guide with the points for today's message and the, the book or page number for this passage, 1 Samuel 1, is in there. Uh, you can grab one of the Bibles in the, the, the chair in front of you. I'd encourage you to do that or bring your own Bible and mark it up and make some notes of these things because it'll help you understand these truths. Let's pray. And we'll jump into uh, our first passage of chapter one today. Father, we love you and just thank you for just the, the gift of your word, Lord. Not just that we have this book with 
words in it that remind us, but that these are actual historical events, real people in real places facing real problems, needing real answers. And Lord, what I love about your word is you don't ever sugarcoat it. You don't try to make people's situations seem easier. You don't paint us in fake ways where we got everything figured out. Your people were real, broken people just like we are today, facing honest day-to-day situations, sometimes life-threatening or life-changing situations. And they were learning to trust in a God who loved them more than they could ever comprehend. So Lord, please teach us uh, over these next several weeks and months as we open up your word and and learn from those who have gone before us. May we be a changed and transformed people as a result of what you teach us through this book. ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You don't have to look around too much to realize that our world is pretty desperate for leaders nowadays. We often, though, want leaders who don't ever face tragedies, never have transitions, and their whole life is basically characterized by triumph. But the reality is that just doesn't happen. A true leader is not one who avoids tragedy, is able to get rid of any transition, and only experiences triumph. A true leader is one who learns to live through tragedy, transition, and triumph that understands how to navigate each of those situations because that's just the reality of the life that we live in. And and 1 Samuel is gonna show us that in so many amazing ways. We're gonna see anywhere from uh, an unknown, lost in the midst of life, nothing prominent, uh, female who really should have been unknown in their society in a lot of ways, totally outcast in a sense of never having anything that in that society would have offered anything to her family or even her community. And when she was in the midst of something of that nature, was faced with a choice of how would she move forward in her little invisible, unknown situation when everyone else around her life seemed to be progressing. What would she do in her moment of desperation? And the choice she would make would not only turn her life upside down, but would transform a whole nation. We'll also see Characters who are in great prominence, have everything going for them, are good-looking and tall and handsome and and have all the characteristics you think would be a great leader and would have even positions of great leadership. But in the midst of having everything you could possibly think of or want when it comes to leadership, would make decisions that would cause every single bit of it to crumble. Simply because... He was more interested in pleasing people than he was in pleasing God. No matter what situation you might find yourself in, no matter what your circumstances might be, you're gonna see characters and people who are in very similar spots. 
And we can either succumb to our circumstances, we can become a victim of life and give up, or we can face our circumstances, lean in to the tragedies, transitions, and triumphs that we face, and just lead. Just follow the one who is with us wherever we go, and no matter whether we have a big platform or a very small one, just lead. Today we're gonna look into the life of a seemingly unknown, insignificant, and forgotten person in the world's eyes and watch what decision she makes when she comes really to the end of her rope, when she's at a point of breaking, and how the decision that she makes at that moment transforms a whole nation, impacts hundreds and thousands of people because of what she decided at that moment. So in this journey, you're gonna see three things today. You're gonna see a personal tragedy, a personal turning point, and then a public blessing. A personal tragedy in someone's life, a personal turning point in the midst of that tragedy, and a public blessing that happens as a result. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter one, that's where we're gonna be today. And we're gonna jump in and look at some of the details that the author gives us to, to kick this off that's very important for us to understand. So bear with me as we get through this first point. It really sets up the whole thing and then we'll move quickly through the latter ones uh, as we do so. First Samuel 1, uh, read together with me as we start. It says, there was a certain man, hang on, there's a certain man who needed glasses. It is eight. <laughs> My, my personal tragedy is my body's <laughs> falling apart. I turned, I turned 29 this year, and so my body's starting to show that. There was a th certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, not Tofu, son of Zuth, an Ephratite. He had two wives. I'm not even going to touch that, so just <laughs> bear with me. The name of one was Hannah. Now, in, in the way they would write, they would put the first wife's name first. So Hannah was obviously his first wife, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And it says, Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, I don't have time to go into this completely, but I think I can make a simple point to help us understand. The Bible never condones polygamy like this. But in that culture of that day, life was very different. So even though it's not condoned, uh, we can sit in judgment in our day and not really understand why characters did what they did and not realize that we do the exact same things, just in different ways. See, children were highly uh, necessary in their economy, in an agrarian culture, and we'll see that. And so when you married someone and they happened to be barren, that could be devastating for your family in an earthly way. And so you see that even here, this man who was even a, a, a we're gonna see a spiritually godly man, he followed the law, he went and celebrated the festivals, we'll see, but he went and married another woman in order to carry on their family line and really to help their family economically. Now, we might say, well, that's not a good reason. Sacrifice your marriage for the sake of 
you know, the economy or your prosperity. Well, we may not sacrifice our marriages today, but we sacrifice a lot of other things that are just important to God in the name of prosperity. We often easily sacrifice our children or sacrifice relationships or sacrifice our willingness to serve others or be available for others because money and economy become so important and, and so significant to us that we all have these issues and, and our generation will be looked back upon by others many years from now and they probably won't understand many of the decisions that we make. I say that all to say, before we're too quick to make an evaluation, understand that every generation struggles with the same things, they just deal with them in different ways. So watch this now, the, de the detail that the, the narrator gives is very important. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So it's the first time you're going to see this mentioned never, uh, no, a number of times. Now this man, which is Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons, Eli, of, two sons of Eli, Hophni and Penaeus, were priests of the Lord. So what, what he's telling us here is this was uh, in Exodus, God told them that these are the festivals you are to celebrate and to gather every single year. And there's three primarily, and, and this is what this passage is saying, is that this guy was a godly man, a godly family. He led his family to leave where they were at, to go, to take all these possessions with them, to go and celebrate during these festivals. And they were to be joyful times of celebration. You are to bring, uh, you're going to see animals, some of the best of your cattle, some of the best of your wine, some of the best of your grains and your family, and you would actually celebrate. They were great celebrations of what God had done in the lives of his people. And many people stopped traveling. It's too difficult of a, it was an inconvenience or whatever it might be. They got busy with life or, or whatever, and they forgot. But this was a guy that faithfully went and traveled and did this every year in each of those different times. It says, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. Now note, now we're five verses in and, and two times the narrator has mentioned that Hannah is without a child, can't have children. The first is just a general narrative detail. This time, he's given us a little more information. Why can't she have children? Because the Lord has closed her womb. Fortunately, she has a husband that gives her double portions, right? Two scoops of fajita she gets. Well, but I'm chuckling, but you got to picture this. Put yourself in the story. Put yourself in Hannah's shoes. We're going to talk about this a little bit. Picture them sitting down. Here's Peninnah. She has all of her children, which were a huge deal in their culture. And Elkanah's serving things up. She gets a portion. And down to all of her kids, all while Hannah sits there, you could imagine, watching this happen year after year after year. But she gets an extra scoop of mashed potatoes, right? Double portion. That would be difficult. You can see the author is trying to help us get in the shoes of these characters and understand what's going on. It says in verse 6, and her rival, 
which was Peninnah, the other wife, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Hmm. Three times now. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So you see the setting, uh, what was going on. Hannah couldn't have children. Peninnah did. Peninnah would just rub it in her face year after year after year. And obviously, Hannah's barrenness is an important detail to the, narrative, to the whole story. But let me help us connect with this a little bit. Why was this such a huge deal? It was huge both personally and it was huge societally. It was huge economically. But here's a couple ways and maybe you can connect to what Hannah was experiencing and why this was such a significant thing in their day and age. First, this was an agrarian culture. The Israelites were farmers. That's how they lived. Almost everything was through farming and every family had a certain plot of land. Okay, that was part of the allotment. If you remember in the book of Joshua, every tribe got so much land and every tribe distributed it out to the family. So every family had the opportunity to make a living and you made a living off your crops. So when you had children, you had employees. That's, I mean, that's just a simple thing. If it's just you working your big, pro think, of, think of it yourself. If you have very little and you just start with a piece of property, think of how much work that is. But every child you have, in particular a son, was an employee. See, unlike our day and age, when our kids simply consume everything that you get as parents, back then they actually contributed to the family. They were a huge economic boost. I'm making a joke, but not really. <laughs> The reality is every child you had grew your business. And that's not necessarily in a negative way, it's just the reality of it, and that was beneficial for them as well. They were harvesting, they were growing, they were building the economic uh, strength of their particular family. So that was a huge deal. Second thing, kids carried on the family name and the family property. If you had no children, guess what? all your property would go to someone else when you passed on. And your family, in a sense, could be almost non-existent after that. So no children meant no heir to pass down your property to and someone else would take it. So now you start to get an idea of, okay, I could maybe understand why someone would actually want to have two spouses. If you've had one, you know how difficult that is. To actually have two, it's got to be pretty critical circumstances you'd be in, right? We're talking life or death. There was no 401ks back then, no IRAs, no work-related retirement plans. You get too old to work, and literally people would starve to death in their own homes if there was no one to provide. Your children were your retirement. They would take care of you in your old age. To not have an heir meant you would be incredibly vulnerable as you got into your older age. The other one is, is more societally. Okay, we don't see this now because we've been born into these large nations that have all these structures in place like military and government and schools and all that. Israel is still a pretty young nation at this point. Okay, it's only been a few generations since they've come out of Egypt. They don't even have a king yet. They've kind of gone through this judges season. They don't have the, the government and structures set up like we have now. And there were tribal nations back then. They weren't huge nations like we see now. There's maybe a few big nations and everyone else was like these people groups that kind of floated around. And the smaller your people group was, the more vulnerable you were. 
In fact, if you bumped into the wrong people group and you weren't that big, they could literally wipe you out in one swoop with their army. And now there's no more Israelites ever again. So when you have a larger family, you're able to contribute some of your children to serve in the military, to be part of protecting your nation. You grow your tribe as a whole, which makes you stronger in that particular time period. So not only were there personal family benefits that were huge, there were societal ones as well that were vital to the survival of the Israelites as a nation. All that to be said that for a woman in that time to not have children would be the most devastating thing you could possibly experience. See, now we don't even think twice about a, a woman now being able to go out and have a career or do whatever and have significance in that sense. Back then, that wasn't an option. Your greatest help to your family was having children. Imagine if that was the one spot where you could feel significant and contribute to a family and society and it was suddenly taken away from you. Now maybe we get a little bit of an idea of how this story is starting out and why the narrator felt it so important to tell us three times that Hannah had no children, twice because God had closed her womb. And then we see the last verse of this section. It says, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So here's this time of great celebration, joy and tons of eating. You'd have your best wine, your best meat, your best grain, all your friends, everyone's there around in this huge celebration and Hannah's not eating and she's weeping. And then she's got this great husband Elkanah and he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? All vital questions. And then he drops the big one. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Basically he's saying, honey, you got a hunk of burning love here. What more could you possibly want? <laughs> Guys, I know some of you are gonna memorize that verse. That'll be the, the one verse you have in the Bible. Here's my first point for you, and I think vital really to this whole book is times of hopelessness reveal where I place my hope. Times of hopelessness reveal where I place my hope. Hannah felt hopeless. Everything that her society told her was significant. Everything that she knew was vital to her position within her family and her culture was gone. She was invisible. She was useless in their eyes. And in her own eyes, that's how she felt. And in a time when she should have been celebrating, when God says, you come together as a people and you bring the, the blessings that I've given you and you, you sacrifice them and you enjoy them, they would enjoy a majority of the sacrifices during this time and, and celebrate what God had done in the history of their people and the salvation he brought. When she should have been celebrating and focusing on what God had done in her life, all she could think about was the one thing he hadn't done. You ever been there? You ever 
had that one thing in your life that, that if you didn't have it, if you couldn't get it, if you couldn't control it, would make you so upset that no matter what else you had good in your life, it didn't matter because you didn't have this. See, I think there's some obvious things that, that come from this scenario, and we see it even in their dynamics, just like we have as well. Two things that I think in particular happen. Oftentimes, when we see someone that we care about that is so hopeless and seems so helpless because there's something in life that they have to have in order to feel joy or feel useful, and they can't get it, we want to come and save them. We want to offer them. Unfortunately, what we often do is we offer them another false savior for the one that they're trying to be saved through. Hannah was her children. She couldn't have joy. She couldn't celebrate. She couldn't think of the God who had saved her and her people. She couldn't think of the family in which he'd placed her and the good things that were around her because all she wanted was a child. And if she could just have a child, then she would be happy. And Elkanah comes in and says, hey, I can't fix that one, but look what you got here. Look at our marriage. You got romance, honey. You got this here. That should be able to save you. Can't that make you happy? We all do this, don't we? We try to fix someone's hopelessness in one area by giving them another temporal thing that will never truly satisfy them. And when you're in that situation, you forget to, to step out of your tunnel vision, we've all been there, and miss all the blessings that God has given us around us because all we're focused on is the one thing we don't have. You see, times of hopelessness are some of the greatest gifts that God gives us in our lives because they open our eyes to the only thing that can truly only give you hope. You see, we all have a barrenness that in some ways crushes us. It's different for each of us, but it's the same. It's what overly discourages us when we can't have it, we can't get it, even when we're in the presence of God. And sometimes we come to church angry, and all of us have been there, we come to church angry at God because he hasn't given us that. Sometimes it's directed at other people, maybe other people that we perceive are in the way of us getting it, but the truth is we're angry at God. We're bitter towards him, and we weep, and we come in a time that should be celebratory, should be worshipful, should be filled with him and all that he has done in our lives. And all we can think about is, God, but you haven't done this in my life for me right now. And that's where Hannah found herself. And what we're gonna see is in her personal tragedy, which probably had gone on year after year after year as the story goes. This particular time, something changed. There was a turning point in her life. You see, we often say things like this, is God, if you would just give me this, if you would just bring this into my life, then I'll hope in you, God, then I'll follow you. But the problem is, is even in that statement, God, you give me this, and then I'll hope in you, turns the whole thing around. Because if we need this in order to hope in him, then what we're truly hoping in is this, not him. 
And the worst thing God can do, the most unkind thing he could ever do is give us what we want when he knows that will never truly be what we can hope in, what can ever sustain the weight of our hope. Let's watch what happens in Hannah's life as the story continues, how she faces a transition that's crucial in her life. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And this Greek, the Hebrew word here is, is a very distinct it's not like a, she just got up like she had to go to the bathroom. It's like an intentionality. It's like suddenly she knew, I need to be somewhere, and i got to be there now. She just got up and she rose. And it says it's from the story that she obviously went to the tabernacle uh, because she's in the presence of the priests here in the rest of the story. It says, now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed about and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She's talking about there is a, a Nazarite vow that would dedicate a child to the Lord's service and he would serve in the temple that whole time. And so she's saying, if you'll give me a child, I will give him back to you. I'll dedicate him back to you and he will serve you in full-time ministry here at the temple away from me the rest of his life. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. So she's showing she hasn't eaten, she hasn't, she hasn't celebrated, she hasn't been part of this celebration the whole time. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my greater anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Now listen to this last verse. This is really key. Then the woman, which is Hannah, went her way, and what did she do? She ate, and her face was no longer sad. Let me give you my second point. Actually, these next two are real quick, and then we'll wrap up. My hope is restored through authentic prayers of faith in God and his purpose. Here is Hannah's turning point, and there's two things I want you to see in this turning point that are crucial. One is her authentic prayer in God and his purpose, not a manipulative prayer. We can sometimes think this because she puts these conditions on it. If you will give me this son, haven't we all said, if you'll give me this job, God, if you'll just heal this illness in me, God, if you'll just fix my financial situation, if you'll just find a spouse for me, God, we've all done that prayer. But here's the difference with ours and with Hannah's. When she probably did the same prayer multiple times as well. But this time she says, if you will answer this prayer, if you'll remember your servant, God, she remembered who she was, his servant, then I will dedicate this child to you. He will serve you 
completely. Which is ultimately what every child is supposed to do. Our kids are not ours. All she was doing was recognizing what had been true her whole life. See, she wanted a child, like all of us often do, for emotional reasons, for societal reasons. I want someone to be proud and know someone that can just boost my name. And we have all these selfish reasons for wanting kids and, and how we often pour into them for those selfish reasons. But she come to the point of saying, the best reason to have a child is to care in this world. Because she was giving up all those other ones. Samuel wouldn't be going home with her. Samuel would live in the temple. She would see him maybe once or twice a year. She would have no emotional connection to him. She would get no societal benefit, no economic benefit. All the things that would normally come from kids would be gone in this prayer. And she recognized, and maybe for the first time was transformed into hoping in God and not in a child. See, we see this because look what happened. As the story goes on, it says they rose early in the morning. In fact, you can read this as you go to the next uh, slide. I repeated it. It said the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So her whole demeanor had changed. She hadn't got an answer to prayer yet. She'd simply prayed and submitted it to God, and there was a change. It says they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. So you see, now she's engaged. She's worshiping. She's been transformed. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. That's biblically's for they got naked under the sheets, basically. That's... And the Lord remembered her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. See, Hannah prayed. She was changed. And then her prayer was answered. It wasn't Hannah prayed. She got what she wanted, and then her demeanor changed. No, that's what we often wait for. Hannah prayed she was transformed in that prayer, and then God answered. Here's my third point, and I think connects this as well to what's going on in, in Hannah's life. It is true hope is revealed in my joyful worship of God before he answers my prayer. True hope is revealed in my joyful worship of God before he answers my prayer. See, Hannah's prayer was filled with authentic pain. She didn't Christianize it. She didn't just smile and say, oh, it's all good. All things work together for good, and I'm just going to pretend that this hasn't been painful to me at all. I'm just going to try to be Christian all the time. No, she wept bitterly. She wrestled with the Lord, as all people do who are real honest about the things we struggle with. But she did it in the right place. She brought it to the Lord. And in that wrestling, she recognized her issue. Is my hope has been in this child, God, but no more. I'm going to put my hope in you. And if you do remember me, your servant, and if you will give me a child, then that child will serve you all the days of his life. And once Hannah was transformed and her hope was placed in God and not in this child, she was ready 
to receive whatever God had for her. You see, this isn't some cruel joke that God plays on us, that I'm not gonna give you what you want, ha, ha, ha. It's actually the kindest thing he could possibly do. Because when we get what we want before we're ready for it, we will turn that thing into a God. And it'll either destroy us or we will crush it. Hannah would have crushed that child with her expectations and her hopes and what she wanted that child to become if God hadn't prepared her heart to let go of the child and grab onto him. And the same is true for every single one of us. Oftentimes, God keeps from us the very thing that would destroy us in his kindness and is waiting for us to remove our hope from that temporal thing and place it on him so that we are ready to receive what he has for us. See, as the story goes on, we see how it, it ends. I'm just gonna summarize it for you in a nutshell. As Hannah has Samuel, as you know, and Samuel grows up to an age where he's weaned and, and she can bring him to the temple. And, the, and it ends right here with this, it says, uh, And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. And this is as she's dedicating him and giving him to Eli the priest. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I have made to him. Therefore, I have lent him, and that word really means dedicated. I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. He, Hannah, meaning Elkanah and Hannah, the whole family worshiped as they dropped off Samuel to grow up in the temple. My last point is simply this. True hope results in my willing obedience to God when my prayers are answered. True hope results in my willing obedience to God when my prayers are answered. Hannah followed through She dedicated her son, and it resulted in worship. Let me ask you a question today. When was the last time something you earnestly prayed for and received, it resulted in further worship upwardly of God and further service outwardly to others in your life? See, that's true hope. That's true hope in God, is when your answered prayer results in willing obedience to God. See, oftentimes when we get what we want, that promotion or that new home or that new car or that new spouse or that new girlfriend or that new, you know, our child or whatever, it distracts us from our worship. It consumes our time. It keeps us from serving others. It does just the opposite of what we think. Not for Hannah. That's how we know her hope was truly in God. Because when she got her prayer answered, it deepened her worship upwardly and it deepened her impact outwardly. That child that she gave birth to, this book is named after him. He would become the transitional figure in the nation of Israel over the next several generations. 
he would anoint the first king. And then he would anoint the true king, King David. And he would guide this nation for years to come. See, this woman who is totally unknown, in many ways even unwanted because of what she couldn't provide, but because she put her hope in God, her whole life was transformed. And her impact of what society said was none became huge in the history of that nation. You know, God's people throughout history have called out to God in desperation and in prayer. The Bible is filled with characters from beginning to end who have cried out to God, asking him in desperation to answer their prayers graciously. However, there is a greater Hannah and a greater character who called out in desperation to God only not to have his prayer answered. In fact, his unanswered prayer was necessary so that you and I who call out in desperation as well can somehow have hope that God will answer our prayers when they're prayed according to his will. See, Jesus whom I think Hannah's story points us to in a greater way, sat in a garden towards the end of his life, and he cried out, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. He pled with his father three times, if there's any other way that we can save these sons and daughters, if there's any other way, God, please take this cup from me. What cup? the cup of his father's wrath poured out upon him for your sin and for mine. But that prayer went unanswered. That prayer had to go unanswered because prayer could never be the means. Prayer was simply not enough to pay for your sin and for mine. Our sin need to be rectified. It need to be justified. It needed to be dealt with. And only one person's life could deal with it. And so Jesus' unanswered prayer that, no, this cup can't be taken from you. It won't be taken from you. It must be put on you, my son, so that I don't have to put it on all the other sons and daughters that we long to welcome in. You see, Jesus cried out in desperation too, and he was willing to have his prayer unanswered for you and for me, so that when we call out in desperation and we don't see God answer our prayer in our timing, we can hope that he has better things for us. So let me ask you today, What barrenness are you wrestling with? What is your barrenness in life that you've been bitter about, you've been upset about, or you're angry about, and you keep wrestling with God saying, God, I need you to change this. And maybe he hasn't changed it yet because he's waiting for that turning point in your life. He's waiting for you like Hannah 
to get on your knees, to cry out to him, and place your hope in him alone, and say, God, you need to change this. And when you do, God, this is what this would look like in my life, for me to worship you more and to serve you more when this is in my life. And once you're changed in his presence, you may be surprised at how God shows up. Just like he remembered Hannah. Today, it's your time to believe that he is the only one worthy of your hope. He's the only one that can sustain the weight of your hope. And until you let go of those temporal things that will never, ever satisfy you, the kindest thing he can do is leave you in your spot until you're ready to be changed by him. Let's pray.